Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. Are you losing friends or family members over differing political or religious beliefs? Are you being played by institutions that demonize their opponents so you'll give them money? And how can we break through the toxicity and polarization that distracts us from making positive progress? Bill Shireman makes a living helping corporate and institutional enemies find common ground. He's here to discuss how the rest of us can avoid the mind games that have us believe our neighbors are the enemy. Welcome to The New Man. Today we're talking with Bill Shireman. He is the president and CEO of Future 500, where they specialize in finding common ground between uncommon allies. They've bridged gaps between major corporations and activist groups, which is no easy task. You can learn more about them at future500.org. Bill, thanks for being here today. Uh, really pleased to be here with you, Trip. I um I reached out on Facebook a while back. There was so much toxicity seemingly in the world. There's so much polarization going on, whether it's political or in our community for for various things that are happening. And I and I reached out. I was like, is anybody out there bringing people mm-hmm. together? Is anybody that actively understands this process and isn't just preaching to their own choir? Like, is there anybody that that can that can say, hey, I know that we are seemingly enemies here, but how can we work together? And I got lots of great names. Yours came to the forefront. I did some research on you. I was really excited. Like, it's, it's you're a conservative that lives in San Francisco. What are you like? Are you like one of four conservatives? <laughs> like, you guys well, we get have, together for know, coffee or <laughs> something? Something like that. It's, it's four, four or five of us, I think, or eight percent of the population in San Francisco here is Republican, and 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 I'm Republican because I believe in free enterprise. I believe I believe in liberating people who have been oppressed. I believe in a small government and empowering people rather than rather than government or corporations or other institutions. And I, I think that's where, you know, the Republican Party perhaps started, but I don't think that's where the party is today. And I think the Democrats as well tend to be a party of division uh, and subtraction. Uh, they they take away from us in in pretending that they're that in so doing they're going to give to us. They take away a sense of personal power uh, and uh, and uh, personal agency 
uh, as does the Republican Party in its institutional form. And I think it's it's time that we changed that or restored the original purposes of these parties and of every other institution that we uh, that we uh, have intended for ourselves here. Got it. Got it. That's a whole other conversation. Maybe maybe we'll have you back on it to talk about that at some point. But the reason why I wanted to have you back in is because I, I'm noticing as we as as we kind of drive through our neighborhoods and we might see a sign in our neighbor's yard and there's a thing that comes up and like either that guy's on our team or he's evil. He's trying to destroy right. it. Like there's something yeah. where we yeah. have we're turning against one another through the, this sense of ideas. And um, I know that that's your forte is like, how do we how do we bring people together? So for the guy that's out there, he's uh, he's on the treadmill or he's stuck in traffic right now. I want to see if there's something we can learn from you that'll help him bridge some gaps, whether it's in his own organization or his community or his family. So I guess my first question is, you know, what is, what's, what's going on here? Why is there so much toxicity? Why is there so much polarization? Well, I think, you know, that, that we have divided ourselves because it works for our institutions. It works for our media. It works for uh, our uh, embedded corporations. It works for the government. Uh, uh, to have the people divided. It's not that anybody necessarily conspired to have us divided, but it simply works to the advantage of the status quo if the people are divided between the left and the right. Hmm. And I, I, I think that's what we have to discover. You'll notice that those signs divide people. When they divide people politically, they're dividing them between the left and the right, between conservatives and progressives, between people who can appreciate tradition, the value of tradition, uh, can can see the dangers that can come from newness and from you know external sources, the risks in nature, the risks in people. That's the conservative side of us, and then there's the progressive side of us, which sees the possibilities in people. Uh, you know, understands that people can be selfish and negative, but sees them uh, uh, in their in their full potential. Uh, and those two sides of us really need to work together. Those are the sides that keep us safe and keep us progressing at the same time. Hmm. Unfortunately, our media loves to have those sides divided from one another. Our media has divided us into you know, the, the Fox News group uh, that will only see the conservative side and the MSNBC group that will only see the progressive side. Uh, our elections do the same. Our business institutions you know, that are so involved in, in politics uh, know how to game us, to pull us aboard. Our labor institutions do the same thing. None of these institutions are evil. The people within them are are overwhelmingly good, but they all find it to their benefit to keep us at odds. Yeah. And so now we have a crazy society where you know we are just battling each other uh, 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 in the fiction that one side is going to win uh, and uh, and and be in power forever, and that that will actually be good for us. Yeah, that the that the the way forward is to have one team beat the other. It's like Super Bowl Sunday instead of recognizing that optimally there's a progressive side in each of us, there's a conservative side in each of us, and it's how do we how do we have those things bridge the gap? Um, one of the things you said there, I, I you know I in my previous business I was in media, I had I had political consultants that I worked with, and I had I remember I remember talking to one of them, and he says it's really hard to make money, it's really hard to raise money when people aren't scared. And that was his job right. was to go out there and scare people so that they could raise money. And I remember my gut sinking in that moment. I was like, oh, we're like, yeah. we're creating a problem here so that right. more money will be made. And, and you just spoke to that. 
It is, you know, it's really disappointing. And again, I don't want to blame anybody in this because our job, my my job with Teach About 100 is to work within all of the system, all the establishment institutions of the system, work within them and between them. And I have yet to find the true demon there who's actually intended to create a system like this. But when I used to run a nonprofit group uh, to raise money to, for the environment and to, and to pass good laws, we tested mailing. And we found that we could make two and a half times as much money per mailing if we had an enemy, a demon, and, a, and an immediate risk, an immediate threat. We'd make two and a half times as much, which means that we could actually raise that money. When we sent out mailings that were positive and optimistic and championed the best in people and noted the progress that we've made, <laughs> we lost money on them. Okay. So, you know, every uh, social cause out there knows that they have to pretend to their members that things are getting worse, that the, uh, that the abyss is just around the corner, and that if they don't act now, then disaster will strike. That's how you get people motivated. That's how you get them to take action is you got to convince them that the end of the world's getting ready to happen. The end of the world is, is, is upon us. We must act now. So the right believes that and they blame the left. The left believes that and they blame the right. Corporations, you know, believe it and they, and they blame the activists that are regulating them. And the activists blame the corporations that are, you know, in power. We can't solve these problems in separate silos. We need each other. There's a reason, a mission for every institution that we have. If we just battle each other, then we will indeed reach the abyss, but not the way that we think. It seems like that's where the confusion has been, that the mission has turned from, you know, whatever it is, progressing certain policies to, that are going to help us. It's turned into get the, get the other guy. He's the demon. And I've heard you talk about, I watched one of your videos where you talk about this process of demonizing the other side and stripping away their humanity. Um, it's not unconscious that this is happening. No, it's not. In fact, it's a part of the formula. You know, if you become a professional in any, uh, in any industry, you know, for-profit, non-profit, you will eventually be taught the formula that works to advance the institution. And, you know, if you're, if you're selling snack foods, as I used to, the formula is, uh, you know, sugar and sweet and fat. Uh, you, you maximize those and you sell a lot of snacks. If you are selling a cause, the formula is that you sell fear, you sell concern, you sell worry, and people buy it, and you can raise money as a consequence of that. Well, that uh, has a cumulative effect where it dehumanizes the people in those institutions. We become machines that are serving the institutions rather than using the institutions to serve us. So I advise everybody, whether you are working for a for-profit or a non-profit, you know, you feel like you're, you know, your life is lacking a little bit of, of uh, purpose to challenge the formula inside your institution. It really has to start inside. Don't, don't just attack the other institution. Work inside your institution and realize what its mission is. The mission of a company is not to maximize profit. The mission of a company is to provide a service that enhances our prosperity, to enhance prosperity, and always be a nudge agent inside to nudge your institution toward advancing its mission rather than its self-interest. When you advance its self-interest, you're taking from others. 
when you advance its mission, you're giving to others and you still get to profit uh, as a consequence. And this all sounds great, and it sounds like something that's easy to say as we stand up, as we sit up here in the in the bleachers, looking down yeah. on the game. Yeah. But you yeah. you get in the trenches, and you help some of you help these things. You help those people that are at odds meet. Like, can you give us an overview? Like, how does that work? How do you get in there and start to challenge these missions and and get these things done? You're talking about what you're talking about now is like within an organization, but I know you do them kind of across boundaries too. So, yeah. uh, I'd love to hear some examples. Like, how does this work? Sure. Where have you seen well, this work? Let's let's take a let's take a classic classic example. Uh, big oil versus environmental groups. Uh, Exxon Mobil, let's say, you know, the world's largest privately held uh, oil company, and Greenpeace, the world's biggest brand name in the environmental community. Those are two that you would think would be completely at odds, and in fact, they do battle one another in the media. Uh, with Greenpeace criticizing Exxon Mobil as a big oil company trying to profit at the expense of the earth. And, and ExxonMobil being a, a feeling a sense of offense that they are constantly targeted by those uh, by those uh, activists. A few years ago, we did a little uh, a little experiment engaging those uh, two together. Now they wouldn't meet with each other in person because if you meet with people from the other side, then you discover something odd about them, and that is that they are human beings, that they are <laughs> complex individuals. And that you feel a sense of empathy toward them. So a lot of people in these political battles, they just won't meet with each other. And they say, well, it's because of some kind of, I don't know, righteousness or something. But but they really don't want to meet because they don't want to discover that other people are actually human beings. Uh, and that they have some empathy for them. Uh, that they've destroyed the demon in their mind. So we met separately with these groups. And we talked to them about, well, what's the real, most important solution to climate? You got battles over you're battling over pipelines, you're battling over regulations, and so on. What's the real fundamental uh, 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 cure? And both of them said, "Well, we need a price on carbon. We need a carbon tax. You know, nationally, we need to put a price on carbon." And we said, "Okay, well, that's great. It's you know, common common bond." Uh, then, so how much should this carbon tax be? And what should its objectives be? We worked with both of them. We developed a solution to climate involving a, a tax on carbon. And we developed the exact same language, the exact same word, word for word, a federal law that was vetted by folks within both of those organizations, and they both agreed 100% with the exact same wording. Now, they didn't know that we were engaging with the other side. Hmm. Uh, and if we had been, they might have, you know, been suspicious or you know, figured out. They completely agreed. Yet they are still battling, and that's and that's how our political system is set up to keep people in battle. Greenpeace can't raise money if they're not demonizing another side. Wow. And uh, the corporate community really can't get things through Congress if they're not playing the political game. Uh, so both sides are gamed. Both sides have access to solutions that are cheap, easy, and effective but they are not politically viable right now because the system is structured to keep them apart. That's a tragedy. It is a tragedy. It seems like they're more, instead of being you know, attached and committed to the outcome, they're more attached to being seen as a member of a tribe, and that tribe means that they're against the other tribe. And it, it just seems very primitive in that way, that, that they've lost sight of what the kind of the real end goal is. Um, it's more about 
I'm I'm against those guys, which means we're together. There's something like that. It is. It's very tribal. And I, you know, I think we all have a sense of you know, tribal impulses within us. We grew up in tribes, in small communities. We all had our roles in those tribes. And one of the roles that we all shared was being watchful of the tribe on the outside. And so when we feel like we're, if there's another tribe, we're watchful. At least half of us, at least the conservative half of us, are very watchful and very distrusting of that tribe. And we carry that into our politics now where it is almost more satisfying for people to notice a tragedy that's on its way and to let it happen uh, in conflict with the demon that they've decided to blame it on rather than to actually do something about it, which requires that they engage their adversary as a human being. I don't get the sense as I listen to you that that's going to change, that that, that's more of just like a mindset. It's a level of development. That's not going to change um, is that right? Or do you see us evolving out of that? Or like, are we going to hit a wall where like we're, enough is enough and we stop doing things that way? Or is that just going to be on a continuum? Well, you know, I think it is a part of our nature, but that doesn't mean that we can't create cultural uh, uh, you know, forms of civilization that harness our nature for good. Uh, this tendency to divide people into these extreme camps has not all is not always led society. Uh, to uh, into uh, decline as it, as it is uh, ours today. Uh, in fact, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, uh, uh, humanity existed in tribes where there was a balance of these uh, of these tendencies. Now, tribes were not as prosperous as we are today. Tribes faced all kinds of material uh, lacks, uh, uh, educational lacks, and so on. So nobody's suggesting that we go back to that tribal time, but. The Industrial Revolution that, that brought us uh, into uh, uh, a, a new civilizational structure uh, split us in two. It divided us into specialized parts, divisions of labor in factories, in offices uh, that were separate from one another mm. and kept us from engaging with one another. Fundamentally, it separated the masculine from the feminine. It said, men are over here, and they're the breadwinners. So they're going to be all masculine in their in their societal roles. And it said women are over here. They're going to be the bread bakers. And they're going to be all feminine, all connected in their roles. Now, we all are a mix of masculine and feminine. The two cannot, cannot exist uh, apart from one another. We right. all have a sense of connection to one another. And we all have a sense of, of power to do as individuals. Uh, but when we did that division, it meant that we had male-dominated institutions, for the most part, who were, that were overly masculinized, separated from their purpose, and vulnerable to becoming the way a lot of institutions are now, just out to maximize their own, you know, they call it profit, maximize profit, but it's really a maximize power uh, uh, within that institution to perpetuate the institution rather than to advance the mission. We need to integrate those two halves of ourselves. We need masculine and feminine together in all of our institutions. And that's what we're lacking right now. So when men feel a sense of, uh, you know, what, are, what am I in this rat race for? Why am I coming to work? What am I, what am I battling for? Shouldn't I just give up? Mm. Uh, it's really an opportunity for them to bring in their purposeful side and to say, I don't work for an institution anymore. I recognize that the institution works for me. 
that the institution has a mission and a purpose. It's a tool. And as a part of that institution, I am, my responsibility is to use that tool to advance the mission of the institution. Hmm. And that doesn't set you at odds with the institution, as you might think. What it does is it puts you above the institution, able to be a strong, effective leader, an inspirational leader. The best corporate leaders are the ones that really understand the mission of their organizations, and they chart a path for that mission, uh, and the rest follows. That's what we have the opportunity to do. It sounds like we're I'm getting this sense of like we're talking about power over other people. Um, and whenever I, I'm just getting this sense of like whenever I'm feeling like I'm in this place where I'm starting to drink the Kool-Aid that this yeah. whoever's on the other side of that wall is my enemy, I'm being played. Yeah. I'm being played. There's a yeah. chance that I'm being played to someone's advantage. Someone above me is using that to have power over me. Um, and then I'm, I'm getting this shift in mindset that says, wait a second, how do I use this institution? How do I use this organization or whatever it is to serve me? We can be working on this together and, and then start to see how these parts, we can serve one another instead of be at odds with one another because that, that power over is going to use division to keep, uh, to keep us under their thumb. Yes, very much, very much. You, okay. you know, we are being played when we're, when we're put in this position, when we're, when we're maneuvered by communications professionals, by advertising, by narratives in our, in our media, we're being played. Now, I don't blame the people that are playing us because we're playing ourselves. You know, it's a vicious circle with each one of us demanding that our institutions uh, uh, prosper uh, at the expense of other institutions. We're all a part of creating the culture in which we right. play one another. Right. So uh, I am not blaming the 1%, the 10%, the 99%, uh, the corporations, the government, the labor unions, the environmental groups. I'm not blaming anybody. Uh, but I am calling on every individual to stop thinking of these institutions as separate from themselves and certainly stop thinking that they work for these institutions. Hmm. Uh, the institutions are always tools. That's all they are. And they work for us. Huh. I, I like that you put the power back into the individual, you know, into our step here, because it would be easy to just want to demonize whatever. Like you said, you went through that list of people there. But the reality is, is if we didn't want it, it wouldn't exist, that we're, we're somehow buying into it, that we're co-creators of this dynamic. Um, and so it's up to us to look in the mirror and say, where am I choosing this and where can I make a shift? Exactly. Exactly. And it's a fairly subtle shift. You know, people don't have to completely, you know, abandon their lives and change their lives. It's it's a sense of recognizing your own power as an employee, uh, as a customer, as a voter. Uh, recognizing your power that in itself is a is a is an act of empowerment. Once you recognize your power to have an impact, then you uh, follow the steps that flow from that, and you actually do have an impact, and you turn the tables. And as you get used to exercising this kind of power, uh, you have a, a greater sense of personal fulfillment and purposefulness in your life. You gave us an example of how the organizations, you know, you help those organizations see eye to eye. Can you give us an example of what this would look like on a personal level, a guy that that has been up to this point thinking that it was him against the institutions or you know, having basically creating all these villains and demons out there, what does it look like for him to take the, the power back for himself? Well, let's, you know, let's just take a look uh, at, at a real at a real situation. Uh, Coca-Cola company uh, and activist groups uh, 
butted heads several years ago over the issue of uh, of uh, genocide in the Sudan. And, you know, here's, here's how it came about. So you had, on the one hand, you had anti-genocide activists who were uh, understandably uh, uh, shocked uh, and mobilized to prevent the genocide that was happening in Sudan. And they need, in order to build a campaign, they needed to have an enemy. Now, they could have blamed the government, but nobody knows about the government particularly. It doesn't raise much money to blame the government. Uh, so they knew they needed a corporate enemy. And they looked around and they said, well, you know, Sudan sells a lot of its oil to China. China at that time was having the Olympics, 2008 Olympics. The biggest sponsor of the 2008 China Olympics is Coca-Cola. Therefore, we can argue that Coca-Cola in supporting China is supporting China's purchase of oil from the Sudan, which is supporting genocide in Sudan. Now, that's a pretty tenuous uh, set of connections there, but it yeah. does give you the ability to blame Coca-Cola for, for genocide in Sudan. So they mounted a big campaign against Coca-Cola, uh, had you know op-eds in the paper calling for change and so on. Well, smart people within Coca-Cola said, this is an opportunity for us. We can actually do some good in the Sudan. But we have nothing to do with genocide in Sudan. We have, you know, operations in southern Sudan. Why don't we mount an effort to help build civil society in South Sudan? And why don't we reach out to the, to the uh, human rights uh, 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 folks and see how we can work together toward that? They formed an alliance. They worked with um, uh, Oxfam. Uh, we introduced them to the folks who were... Uh, who were carrying out the campus campaigns, criticizing the company. And the activists discovered they could accomplish much, much more by working with the company than by pretending that the company was the demon in order to raise money to go out and try to do something about the cause. They had a direct impact. Coke was able to dedicate profits from its operations in South Sudan to build up civil society, to build up the capacity of South Sudan to actually become a, 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 a separate nation. They were part of the peace building process. Now it is complex and difficult, and we all know, uh, you know, it, it remains difficult in Sudan. But the activists were able to accomplish something because a few thoughtful employees within Coca-Cola, instead of responding to this attack with a counterattack, decided that they would work together with the activists to actually solve the problem. Got it. That's a that's complex. <laughs> that's a lot and a lot of moving pieces there. The thing I'm taking away though is a few people started to speak up. They started to see where it wasn't okay, and they started writing. They started letting their voices be known. They started to make connections in there, and instead of just building another wall to separate themselves, they opened up a dialogue. Hey, what's possible here? And I like that you said there were some smart people in there. Instead of attacking the other guy and trying to defend, they said, "Yeah, let's try to do some good here." Um, it opens the doors for, for another possibility there. I want to see how we can help this guy that maybe he's looking across his street and he sees a, a political sign in his neighbor's yard and he's just like, oh my God, this guy, I can't believe mm -hmm. I'm next to this guy. He must be a, you know, he's going to try and tear down this, our, our, what makes our country great. So what is it that, um, what is it that he could do? We talked about a, little, a few things here of, of like breaking down this myth of a demon. I've heard you say before we can care about what before they care about what we know, they need to know what I care. Let's let's go through some of that stuff if we could. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if somebody is really passionate about an issue and they and they and they come across as fanatics, you know, we all are part-time fanatics. We all are triggered by uh, messages that we receive that 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 speak to our back brains, that speak to you know the automatic responses. And when somebody's really, really passionate about an issue, they might be they might find themselves to be politically conservative because they absolutely support the right to keep and bear arms. They might find themselves to be, you know, passionately uh, liberal and progressive because they absolutely want guns out of their communities. Uh, uh, wherever they wherever they are on the spectrum, they are likely to understand a truth, a particular truth, and all they really want is for you to hear their truth as well. So when we work with people who are passionate about an issue, the first thing to do is just sit down with them and chat and hear what they you know what what they really care about. If we chat with them, if we discuss with them, then we show them that we care. And as you as as you said, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. If you go to someone uh, who holds an opposite opinion uh, from yours on, let's say, you know, right to life, right to choice, uh, abortion. Uh, if you go to them armed with your point of view, demanding that they accept what's important to you, they don't feel heard at all, and they close off to what you're trying to force upon them. If, on the other hand, you say to them, I'm really interested in, in, in your view on this and why this is so important to you, and you listen until you get it, until you get what emotionally they are connected to what really matters because emotions point us to what actually matters. Mm. Then you can validate that emotion and you will find that it's a legitimate emotion. You'll find that it's legitimate. You agree with it, mm. but that doesn't mean you have to change your position. It doesn't mean you have to agree with, you know, their pro-life or pro-choice position, whatever it is. It just means that you have seen what they're trying to get to. And then they can listen to you and what you're trying to get to. And what we inevitably find is that there are paths toward each of what we want. Mm. That even in cases like abortion, there are, there are common ground steps that can be taken that for the pro-life person drastically reduces the occurrence of abortion. And for the pro-choice person, significantly increases recognition of a woman's right to choose. Those two things don't have to be at odds. They're only at odds when we will not listen to and connect with and feel what the other person feels. Huge stuff. If I'm making, if I'm, if my focus is on demonizing this other person, if my focus is on needing to be right and needing to minimize where they're coming from, we're always going to be at odds. We're never going to get anywhere. If I'm willing to sit down and just listen and really understand why this matters so much to them. Uh, without yeah. needing to convince them of anything, we're gonna. That's where we're gonna find some common ground. We may actually find that we can have different paths, but ultimately we're trying to get to the same thing. There's something under there where we're not really diametrically opposed. We both want very similar things, um, and uh, but but we've got to get through this kind of messy emotional stuff and and really get that we that we're really a lot closer than we might give ourselves credit for. Okay. And, and we find you can get about 80% of the way to each side's objectives, and you still have 20% that you'll battle over, and you can battle over that, but you can battle it with respect. 
right. with understanding of one another. Uh, and frankly, if you've accomplished 80% of your goal, <laughs> you're doing pretty good in life. So, uh, so take the 80%. Take the 80%. I like that. Bill Shireman, Future 500. Uh, they specialize in finding common ground between uncommon allies, and you can learn more about them at future500.org. Uh, Bill, thank you so much again. Absolutely. Really pleased to spend time with you, too. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.